following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. If you would, open up your Bibles or electronic device. It has a Bible on it. Uh, we are in the book of Titus, and um, we are looking at chapter uh, 2 today, and we are going to look at just two verses. And if you're like me, sometimes these small uh, uh, books of the Bible can be hard to find. And so there's this beautiful thing in most books called a table of contents. And uh, it's pretty awesome, right? Like it says everything that's in there. And Titus is in the right-hand side of your Bible. And uh, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, it's the brown uh, book. You can go ahead and grab that. If you grab the blue one, you're going to be a little confused or you'll start singing, and that'd be awkward on many levels. Um, but the, the, the left side of the Bible is, is the Old Testament, which is an old promise uh, that God made. And then the New Testament is a new promise that God has given us and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the four Gospels, and that's the account of Jesus, who is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And then you have the book of Acts. Jesus gives us his spirit when we trust in faith that his blood covers our sin. And it's all the work, the early work of what the Spirit did. Then you have all these letters to the churches on how they should conduct themselves and what it looks like uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do I uh, worship the Lord, not just individually, but also corporately, what we're doing here this morning? And when we looked at Titus, we realized that Titus was uh, really written to a pastor. His name was Titus, and uh, it was written by a guy named Paul. And Paul comes to know Jesus on this road called Damascus, and his life is radically transformed. And Paul is a good person to write on these truths because he was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament, the old promise, like the back of his hand. And as um, Paul starts to break down how the Old Testament fits into today's context, he writes to this pastor on a place called Crete. And he says, um, these believers, these Christians, if you will, um, are, are to work for the Lord. And it's been said that there's, there's three types of workers. There is, uh, for example, if we were to move the piano behind me, the first kind of worker is the one that gets behind the piano, right? Pushes the piano. Um, and then there's a second worker. They, they pull the piano, right, and guide it. And then um, there's a third type of worker, and that's the person who gets the bench. What type of worker are you? Now, I thought there was only three, but then um, Mitch Adams, who I won't name any names, um, <clears throat> he sent me a text earlier this week, and he said there's actually four. There's a fourth type of worker. And I said, what was the fourth type of worker? And he said the fourth type of worker is the person who sits on the bench, and I think he's union, um, actually. <clears throat> so anyway, um, so let's just jump right in. What does it look like uh, to be a, a worker for the Lord, right? What, what does this look like? Well, and why? Why is this so important? Well, being the right kind of worker really shows us what you think about God and, and the way that you work uh, in your everyday life, whether that's your job or in your home, or whatever the case may be, shows what you believe about God. 
and, and how highly you esteem God, right? How you serve others or work is how really you honor and serve the Lord. So, so today, what we want to do is we want to understand how really a servant of man is a servant of God, and it directly affects your doctrine. Look at Titus uh, chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, the big numbers are the chapters, and smaller numbers are the verses. <clears throat> now, he uses a hard word here, and I'm reading out the English Standard Version of the Bible. There's other versions as well, so your version might have another word there, like the word bondservant. We'll talk about that in just a second. But in verse 9, he says, slaves. Slaves are to be submissive, oh, nobody likes that word, to their own masters in everything. Reminds me of the old song, Obey Your Master. That was pre-Jesus days, just saying. Okay, And they are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. They are not to be pilfering, that's an interesting word, but showing all good faith so that in everything, not just some things, but in everything, they, these slaves, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Well, if you want to, you can write in your Bibles. It doesn't matter what grandma told you. You're allowed to, I promise, okay? Um, you can circle that word, whether you have slave or bondservant. We need to understand what is this word in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. The word bondservant is slave, and slave is bondservant. And in the Bible, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and the New Testament written in Greek. And so when you see a word, it is important to understand what that word means in Greek. And the Greek word here means one who is submissive to and entirely at the disposal of his or her master. And we Americans don't like the concept of slavery. Don't get me wrong, like it, it brings up negative connotations, but it is all throughout the biblical text. A bondservant, in short, is a person who is owned as property by another person. And it is all throughout the text. For example, in the Old Testament, there were people who fell into slavery in one of four ways. There were a couple other ways too as well, but we're gonna boil it down to four. First of all, they were born or sold into it. Second of all, they owed a debt by themselves, and when they owed a debt, essentially, they themselves fell into slavery, but also their entire family did too as well. It could have happened at war. People um, overtook communities and, and had people come into slavery that way, or some people just voluntarily embraced it because they were poor and they were starving, and if they wanted to eat, they needed to become a slave. Well, once they were a slave and individuals could be purchased locally from other owners or foreign traveling merchants who sold slaves along with things like cloth and bronzeware and other goods, kind of like the women's swap thing that's happening, right? But there will be no people there, I promise, okay? And in the Old Testament, most slaves really performed pretty harsh labor on farms or in households, but... There were some who had some skills that put them in a different category where they would work in executive positions. Slaves were treated both positively and negatively, mostly negative, but they still had some legal rights. For example, they could borrow money, exchange in business, and while the normal price for a slave was less than a strong donkey, slaves always had hope that they could save up enough money and purchase their freedom. 
And if they couldn't do that, they banked on this thing in Leviticus chapter 25 called a year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, every slave would be released from their debts. Can you imagine if the government embraced this, right? Every four years we get released of our debts. That would be awesome. But uh, I put in that petition and sadly they keep denying it. And so we wonder, is there any like real examples of this in the Old Testament? Well, yeah, some of you know the story of Joseph, right? Technicolor dream coat. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. Hagar in Genesis 16, also a slave. But let's, let's define something real quick. We are all slaves of something. And in the Bible, it says, we are all slaves of sin. For all, Romans 3.23 says, have fallen short of the glory of God and have willingly put themselves into slavery. And even more, we try to work for our freedom to be released of our debts, and it is impossible. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man or woman can boast. And so we are waiting, or we waited, for our year of jubilee, where somebody would come and release us from that sin, and that's what happens in the New Testament. So now we have bondservants and slaves in the New Testament. And the Greek, especially Roman times, because that's mostly where the, the Bible was written in this Roman kind of era, a number of slaves increased big time. Now, here's kind of an interesting fact, okay? The attitude towards slavery in the New Testament was that a slave was more like a servant than one's personal property. So in other words, it was normal. It was culturally accepted that people were slaves, it just happened. It was kind of like people were either managers, right, of certain things, or people were in employees of certain people, and that's kind of how it shook out. So slave owners built houses, and they worked right along them, their slaves. There was really no strong opposition from Jesus to slavery because it was so culturally accepted. The apostles, even in the New Testament, those that followed Jesus, they look at slavery and they were like, it's like the workforce. There's employers and there's employees, and that's how it goes. But we should give warnings for both of those people. If you want a fantastic story of a great uh, slave kind of story in the New Testament, read the book of Philemon. The story of Onesimus is fantastic. And again, it reminds us that we're all slaves and serving a master of some kind, namely sin. We're waiting on Jesus to come and redeem us of this sin. And so we ask, well, what's the problem? If this is just the way it is, then why are we so concerned about it? Well, Paul's uh, writing this letter to Pastor Titus, who is pastoring this church in Crete, right? And these Cretans are all over the place. And essentially what's happening is they're growing in the Lord and they're accepting positions in the church based off of the maturity in their heart. And so you have slaves who are essentially elders over, ready for this? Their masters. Can you imagine that? That's like you coming into church, you're like, I'm an elder of this church, but my em employer, he is, he is not an elder, so ha, I'm over you, right? That's exactly what's transpiring. So Titus is like, Paul, we have a problem. What are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with these people? And so there's these problems that come with these, these social issues. Now, here's what's happening, though, in this time period that's changing really the dynamic of what is happening in society. All of the people who are following Jesus are accepting the term bondservant over their life because they say we are a slave to Christ. 
We serve him. He is our master. We are totally devoted to him. I once was a slave to sin. Christ came, shed his blood, covered my sin, and now I am no longer a slave to that. I'm a slave to him. And it was a good term for believers. They welcomed the term. Paul, Titus, James, Peter, Jude, all described themselves. Romans 1, Philippians 1, James 1, 2 Peter 1, Jude 1. I am a bond servant of Christ. Do you say that? I am a slave to the Lord. See, we have just the negative connotation rattling around in our brain. But we forget it has something positive for us. If somebody redeems you out of something great, you are willingly a slave to that person in a good way. And well, we're not enslaved to human masters, thank God, right? We were slaves to sin, and we were released of that sin when we came to God through faith in Christ. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God through faith and trust in Christ, you are still a slave to your sins. As a matter of fact, the Bible says you're dead in your sins. That's the reality. That's the truth. But if you're a believer and you have come to Christ, you are a bondservant or slave to Jesus, and that is a great thing. That is a fantastic thing. We renounce all other earthly, fleshly masters. We give ourselves totally to the Lord. Why? Because when we're a bondservant of Christ, it isn't painful. Christ's burden is light. I love what Romans says. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, what happens? You reap a benefit. You reap a reward which leads to your holiness, that God would discipline you as a slave so that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's a good thing. Welcome the discipline of a master who knows better than you do. And the result, end result, see, we get saved, trust Christ, because we don't want to go to hell. And we're like, I just want to go to heaven when I die. And God looks at us and goes, hold on a second. A holy life is awesome. And the end result is eternity. So, if I get saved, right, if I come to Jesus, my first reaction is, oh, I can do whatever I want, right? Well, that's awesome. Jesus says, come on in. Let the good times roll. And Paul says, just because you've been saved by grace does not mean that sin should abound. And he says, as a matter of fact, Titus, Pastor Titus, all the way from these believers in Crete to Community Gospel Church today, here's five qualities of a godly bondservant of a slave for the Lord. Here is what it looks like in real life to live out your responsibility to Jesus who died on the cross for your sin. Whether you're in a position of authority or not, this is your spiritual act of worship. This is what it looks like to worship the Lord. Go to verse nine, second part, first thing. You are to be subject to your masters in everything. If you underline the word to be subject, the word there's really interesting in the Greek. It means submissive in a relationship, subordinate, or bringing someone under firm control of another. We talked about this a little bit when we were talking uh, Mother's Day. We talked about this a little bit when women submit to their husbands as their husbands submit to the Lord. We miss the second part of that all the time, okay? <clears throat> and so the, the term there is a military term, and it describes soldiers lining up under an authoritative rank and arranging their military apparatuses on a battlefield to be effective. 
is, is they were submissive so that they could be effective in war. Now, there's another word here that refers to the voluntary action of placing oneself under another's authority. So when it says to be submissive to one's master is an act of faith, how does that look? Ready for this? If you're in the workforce and you have a boss who is over you, you submit to that boss as you submit to the Lord. It is an act of faith to submit to that person. Trusting that God is going to direct her or his life to work out his purposes in his time. And if your boss is not a good boss, then you are obligated as a believer to pray for that person. Constantly, without ceasing. You do not question God there. You say, I am here for a purpose and it is to honor the Lord. And my goal is to get them to see that they too are to honor the Lord. So to submit to an earthly master, one with absolute, undisputed ownership of and unchallenging power over another, pagan or not, reflects your specific submission to God's authority as he is responsible for your care. So when do I get to disobey them, right? Everybody's thinking that. Like, I don't think you know, Pastor Jordan, he's evil, she's evil, right? This person is not love the Lord. You get to disobey when they go against the biblical mandates. So you better know your Bible well and better keep it in context. Because the second you put scripture underneath your accusations against your spirit or against your earthly master, you are putting in front of them a model of Jesus Christ and showing them who God is and what God's all about. And if you distort that, you distorted the image of Christ. Whoa, that's, 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 that's kind of a big deal, right? All right, so you are to obey them in everything. It doesn't say just in some things. And you are to be well-pleasing. <laughs> Notice Paul says, in everything. He says, this, this, you don't get an exception. I had an off day, right? I, I, didn't do so well there, all right? Whether an earthly master treats you well or not, to please or be well-pleasing means that which causes someone to be pleased. Uh, let me put it this way. When you walk into a room, are people, like, going the other direction? Right? This is, like, my biggest fear come to life, right? When I walk in the foyer, people are like, oh, man, Pastor Jordan's here. Ah, like, I knew he was going to be here today. Last week, my biggest fear was that when we were gone, people were like, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> and and if, if, if we are that way, like, we have to repent of that. I want, to, I want people to be excited, right, that I'm here. Not because I'm submissive to sin, but because I'm sanctified by the Spirit. Some people are excited that you're there because you lead them to debauchery. That's not good. People need to be excited because you make them a better person in regards to following Christ. So if something is well-approved or highly satisfactory or extraordinarily pleasing, God's children never return evil for evil. No matter how bad we want to do that, right? As we show a proper opinion of our Heavenly Father and a supernatural life, He gives us to the lost world. Now, in the Bible, words pop up all the time, and that's kind of important. So nine times in the New Testament, it says this word, well-pleasing. 
And anytime a word comes up over and over again, we want to kind of pay attention to that. So if you ever hear a pastor say like, this word comes up this many times, he's saying that because if it comes up often, it must be important. So to be well-pleasing is the goal of every believer's life to bring God glory. To be well-pleasing to our fellow human is to be well-pleasing to God. So let's ask in all things, specifically the places that you populated, because some people right here, some people, they're in this boat where they're like, this doesn't apply to me. I don't work. Oh, no, 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 you work for the Lord, okay? So we have to ask in all things, number one, what does God think about this? Number two, how does this appear in his presence? We have to approach every place we populate knowing that God is not right beside us. He's not right behind us. He's not right in front of us. If you're a believer, he dwells within you. See, we look at it, we're like, uh, God's here somewhere. No, God's here. And if God's here, we should ask, how does this appear to him? Because I'm in his presence constantly. Every area of your life should come underneath God's spotlight. Conversations, standard of living, clothes that you wear, books that you read, business deals that you make, pleasures that you participate in, web surfing habits, friendships, sports, all of them, music. The ultimate question should be, will this, what I'm about to participate in, be well-pleasing to the Lord. Okay, so number one, subject to your masters and all things. How are we doing with this? Like, I've been wrestling with this for a while, so welcome to my world. Well-pleasing. Now, here's a hard one. Not argumentative. Lord, help me, right? How is this possible? It isn't possible on my own strength. I need a spirit, a Holy Spirit that dwells in me to help me with this. Now, literally, don't be argumentative means speaking against, which means not talking back. It's like your kids when they do that, right? I didn't ask for your lip. I asked for you to do what I told you to do. One who is not argumentative does not contradict, does not dispute, does not refuse, does not disobey unless it goes against Scripture. This is a habitual practice that calls for dependence on the spirit and not self. Philippians says it way better than I could. Philippians chapter two, verse 14, which we take out of context all the time. (laughs) Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom your light shines in the world. A bondservant of Christ. And their service to him is rendered without moodiness or irritability. Oh, my word. This happens all the time. And here, like, let me just be transparent with you for a second. Like, full-on confession from your pastor to you. Are you good with that? I'm good with you guys in this. I'm horrible with Bethany in this. Like, I do really well with you because I can fake it with you, right? You say me something, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's nice. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I don't like that at all. Like, why would you say that? To my wife, who is safe, I look at her all the time, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, really? You want me to do that again? Another one? I just sat down. You ever do that? In the same boat? All week long, that's all I hear is this verse in my head. Like, Jordan, a good bondservant for Jesus is not argumentative. They are not moody or irritable. Or irritable. And I'm like, I'm both. I'm both. And Bethany amens, right? She's like, absolutely. So what do I do? Here, here's how you overcome this. Ready for this? You gotta confess in the moment, change your attitude, and participate accordingly. 
You gotta confess in the moment, change your attitude, and participate accordingly. It never fails in my house. Every time I sit down, Dad, Heavenly Father, from whom all blessings flow, right? You gotta change your attitude. How many times have we been in a situation where your phone rings, whatever the case is? Man, we need the Spirit's help in this regard. So obey your masters, be well-pleasing, don't be argumentative, two more. Don't pilfer. What in the world is pilfering? Pilfering sounds old. It's like the song that we were just singeth. Singeth, singeth. What does singeth mean? I don't know, all right? Some of these words pop up, and I'm like, what does that even mean? Pilfering, circle that, means stealing in small quantities, like church pens. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I tell like it, all right? That's not biblical. Um, those are free. Those are free, all right? Uh, <laughs> we're gonna have no church. Annette's back there like, please don't steal the church pens for the love of all this holy. All right, um, I had to say, all right, um, or practicing uh, petty theft, stealing in small amounts. Paul says, don't continually keep setting apart for yourself a part of that which has been entrusted to your care by your master. Or in other words, don't embezzle your master's goods for your own use. That's exactly what Ananias did. For those of you who are familiar with your Bible, in Acts chapter five, verse one through 11, they essentially sold a piece of property and in selling the piece of property, they kept some for themselves. And they said, well, nobody's gonna know about this, right? It led to their death, actually. And they, they wrongly appropriated and then they brought this portion to Peter. So what are we supposed to do? You use what's entrusted to your care for the glory of God and it's enough. Here's what this looks like in real life. Ready for this? There are times in my life, I don't know how it works in your life, but there are times in my life where something will come into our family and there's this little like push that's like, hey, I want you to give that to this person. And oh man, is it hurt. Like I want, that's not for you. There'll be, there'll be like a gift card, right? Comes in, somebody gives it to me and, and they're like, hey, we want your family to do this. And it's like, we have 10 of those. Like, we have, we have a bunch of those. And then I hear about somebody, and they're like, oh, we're just struggling right now. We, we can't, we, you know, we, we've tried to have a date night. We just, we can't really figure out a date night. And I'm like, you have a gift card in your hand. Put it in their hand. And I think to myself all the time, I'm like, but, but God, that's stupid. Like, it's mine. And he's like, you're stupid. <laughs> Use what is entrusted to your care for the glory of God, Right? There are some things that you have right now in your house, myself included, that can be given away. There's some things, like Bethany and I, we talked about this the other day. There's some things we're holding on to because it's, the girls had it when they were little, right? Who cares? Go away. Like, I don't need this in my life, all right? <clears throat> Again, the women's ministry is having like this thing. I don't know. Aaron, I am pushing for your ministry today, all right? Oh, man, it's crazy. If all my junk shows up on that stage, Praise the Lord. All right. Last thing. Show all good faith. Showing all good faith, write that down, means habitually practicing, living out faith to God in both words and actions. There has to be a balance here. There has to be a balance in what you say and what you do. If one is lopsided, it's not good. Bond servants of Christ were to continually demonstrate, manifest words and actions that showed they were loyal and could be fully trusted. They continually proved themselves over and over to be faithful servants in everything that was entrusted to their care. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, It is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. 
Faithfulness in servanthood lies in being ready and punctual and able to execute God's orders when he says them, because he will say them. A godly bondservant of Christ manifests all earthly endeavors looking to the well-being and trust of their master. In other words, we do all things unto the Lord. Would you change your perspective this week and just think about it? I'm gonna drive to work unto the Lord. I'm gonna talk to my coworker unto the Lord. I'm gonna speak to my spouse unto the Lord. I'm gonna speak to my kids today unto the Lord. As I speak to these people, I'm speaking to God because it is an act of worship. I'm going to serve my fellow worker unto the Lord. I'm gonna serve my spouse unto the Lord. I'm gonna serve my kids unto the Lord because it's an act of worship. Show your good faith. Some of you in this room are withholding your worship because you are not serving your fellow believer. That's tough to say. But if we look at what Paul says, in all these things, this really, this last thing encompasses all these things. Bond servants adorn. I love that word adorn. It's like a woman who puts on makeup to make herself more beautiful. It's, it's where we get our word cosmetic, where we adorn ourselves and make ourselves more physically attractive. It means to put into order. It's where we get the cosmos describing simple, pure, beautiful behavior of Jesus. Think about it this way. When we put on a new way of thinking and put in order a new heart that is beautiful in order in God's eyes is a spiritual act of worship. Then, after a believer, a bondservant, adorns himself with these traits, look what Paul says. God's doctrine can be taught. In other words, what he's saying is the path is clear and it's open. It is is wide open to share the gospel. God's doctrine then can be taught. In other words, Paul's telling Titus, when believers who are bondservants and see themselves as slaves in a good way live out this truth, a watching skeptical world is ready to hear how they got there. There are some people in your life who are not asking you how you got there because you're too busy living in the past of your old self. And you're wondering why your evangelistic efforts are falling short. It's because you have your fingertips on the world. And if people aren't asking me questions, then man, I gotta really evaluate my life because the power of the gospel has transformed. Now, Charles Spurgeon, really old pastor, I understand that also dead, said, isn't this a wonderful passage? Because the first inclination is to look at that passage and go, that's, that, no, that's not good. But look at what Spurgeon says. He says, here is a slave able to be an ornament, I think about like Christmas time, Christmas trees, right? To the gospel of Christ. This blessed gospel is not sent to kings and princes. This sermon is not preached in politicians' houses. It is preached to common people like us. And when Paul preached it, the great mass of the population were in cruel bondage. They were treated like dogs or even worse. And yet the gospel had a message for even them. We look at it and we think, is this for us? Yes, this is for us. It tells us that we might, by godly character, adorn the doctrine of God their Savior. It tells us the life of a believer, even if he be a servant, is to be an ornament of Christianity. 
Christ does not look for the ornament of his religion to the riches or the talents of his followers, but he looks to the holiness of their lives that they may adorn the doctrine of God in all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we call you Father because you are just that, a good Father who has welcomed us into your family. You have sent Jesus Christ as Lord, as an offering. His blood that was shed is a perfect propitiation, a perfect sacrifice for our sin. And you clearly outline in your word that if anyone, anyone, would believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would be saved. And God, if anyone who is here today or listening online or who will listen later doesn't know you personally, Lord, I plead that they would repent of their sins and trust Jesus Christ as Savior through faith. I pray that they would embrace the free gift of salvation, knowing full well that their life might not be easier, but that it would be better. Because where they go, you go. Where they walk, you walk. Where they talk, you talk. Where they fall short, you fill in the gaps. And for those of us, God, that know you as Lord and we have committed ourselves to you, we pray right now in all of our earthly endeavors that we would strive to be good ambassadors for you through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And we renounce the times that we have failed to be a model of Jesus Christ in the places that we populate. We ask for your forgiveness individually and corporately. God, we ask that you would forgive us as a church when we don't look like Jesus. And when the bride does not look pure. We pray that today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day we submit. We are obedient to you and your ways. We ask that you would help us through the power of the Holy Spirit, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, that we would be men and women who show integrity, that we would be honest in all things, that we wouldn't take what doesn't belong to us, but we would, minute by minute, second by second, be transformed by the power of the gospel. Because it always comes back to the gospel. The good news that you came, that you died, that you rose again, and that you are coming back again soon. So help us, God, live with anticipation that you are coming again at any moment. And that when you come back, we would have the ability to hear you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we know we are not able to do this on our own strength, but only through the spirit that you have given to us because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.